Rifkin's Festival is the 49th film written and directed by Woody Allen, first released in 2020. Wallace Shawn stars as Mort Rifkin, a film teacher who accompanies his wife, Sue, played by Gina Gershon, to the San Sebastian Film Festival. During the festival, Mort has strange dreams that seem oddly familiar and realises he has some regrets in his life that he has to face. Filmed in gorgeous San Sebastian in Spain, Rifkin's Festival is a playful conversation about cinema itself, but at the heart of it is a sombre character study of a man who might have left it too late. Welcome to the Woody Allen Pages podcast. This week, episode 20, we talk about 2022's Rifkin's Festival, how it was conceived, how it was made, and how it didn't quite get released properly with COVID and all. Spoilers are everywhere, so please watch the film and then come back. Dinner was wonderful. The truffles were exquisite. Oh, yeah. My dear friends, there is no food greater than the food at St. Sebastian. Right. Yes. To the film festival and to all the films that make cinema and art. Woody Allen's taste in cinema hasn't really changed since his formative years. I guess it's true for all of us that the films, music, books and art we discover in our teens stay with us for life. I can remember all the words from songs I loved when I was 12, but I can't remember what I did last month. Allen gets asked about his favourite films all the time, and he's been very consistent over the decades. For him, the golden period was the thoughtful cinema of the 50s and 60s, when Allen was in his teens, that came from all over the world. These films are the ones that inspired him to be a filmmaker in the first place. Allen has never been shy to pay tribute. He's appeared in many documentaries singing the praises of legends that came before him. Throughout his filmography, he's made literal tributes and references to Bergman and Fellini and Godard and many more. This is beyond learning and stealing the tricks of their craft. In Rifkin's festival, he's paying tribute again. It's probably the most overt tribute to that 50s, 60s era he's done so far. But that's not where the story starts. The story starts with a city. After making four films in the US, his longest American run since the early 2000s, Allen returned to Europe. One of his European distributors, MediaPro, had always wanted Allen to return and replicate the success of Vicky Cristina Barcelona, Midnight in Paris and others, and they were willing to stump up the money. For Allen, it always comes down to the idea. If he had a story that would work for Europe, he would go to Europe. Alan spent years considering what a new film could be in Spain. He didn't want to revisit old locations, so he zeroed in on the beautiful city of San Sebastian. Alan had visited the city when he attended the San Sebastian Film Festival over the years. It's not as big as Cannes, but it's one of the most acclaimed film festivals in Europe. So Alan set to write a story that was set in San Sebastian. And ultimately, he landed on doing a film set in the film festival itself. Alan had been to enough film festivals to get the sense of the characters, the publicists, the hot young director, the constant chatter, the business dinners, lots of people sitting on balconies discussing films. This was the world that Alan wanted to capture. I love this festival. You know, it's such a break from the real world. For 10 days, I'm in this, look at that. Magical city and cinema is king. The character that Alan put in the middle of all this was Mort Rifkin. He's an older man stuck in the nostalgia of another time. And it's not just the past of the life that he lived, but the passing of the era of films that he loved. 
In terms of plot, Mort is stuck at a film festival with his publicist wife as their marriage falls apart. He wanders the city alone, thinking about his life. He is diverted when he meets a local doctor named Joanna. It never quite becomes romantic, but having a new person in his life brings up the failings of his past. But it also brings out the best in him. He's not grumpy and angry, but caring and open. This is a charming city. Have you seen the city? Well, my wife knows it well, and she's been here many times, but she's too busy to show me around, you know. Would you like to see some of the nice parts? Yes, I would really love that. At the end, Mort's marriage is over. He is invigorated by his meeting with Joe, but the impossible fantasy of a life together never happens either. We'll leave Mort alone to start a new life, with perhaps a little more self-awareness and a path to be happier. So it was quite a festival. I finished with a marriage that was running on empty and I had time to think about myself and examine my own life. And then there was Joanna, a lovely dream that didn't quite come true, but for a while there, it got my adrenaline going. So maybe Sisyphus was right. This is a film about regrets. It's a theme that Alan has visited before, most notably in Another Woman, Alan's 1988 film about a woman in her 50s realising the mistakes she's made in her life. That film, like this one, owes a lot to Igmar Bergman, the Swedish director who Alan has often said is his favourite. There's certainly a lot of Bergman's 1957 film Wild Strawberries in Rifkin's Festival. Wild Strawberries tells the story of a 78-year-old man who goes on a road trip to accept an award. On the way, he has strange dreams and fantasies that allows him to revisit his past. He recognises his faults but comes to peace with the life he's lived so far. So too does Rifkin. Out of his comfort zone, he starts having dreams about his life. And if the overall story has a hint of Igmar Bergman, then the dream sequences, or the cover versions as I will call them, pours buckets of European film masters over your head. The big hook of the film is the number of Rifkin's dream sequences that are referencing classic films. Like the time travel twist in Midnight in Paris, none of Rifkin Festival's marketing revealed the big hook of the film, but it's the parts that make this story interesting and special. Those dreams, those cover versions, help give context and background to Mort's life. We meet his family and see his childhood. We also see his hopes and his insecurities, and we replay scenes from the past. Let's talk about Alan's choice of films before we get back to Rifkin. There are nine cover versions in the film, Almost all of them are films or directors that Alan has mentioned before as his favourites. The one that is most unlike the others is Citizen Kane, directed by Orson Welles. It was released in 1941 and is over a decade older than all the other cover versions in this film. It's also the only American one. Alan had crossed paths with Wells on Casino Royale in the late 60s, although they didn't work together on anything. Wells was far past his prime and was just a bitter, overweight grump by that point. Perhaps as the first cover version, Alan wanted to go with something that could be easily recognised to set up the idea. The snow globe shot and the sled named Rosebud are scenes that all cinephiles know, but Alan has made it his own, or more accurately, Mort's own. The snow globe for Mort has a New York tenement, complete with a bodega underneath, as opposed to some fantasy of a snow cabin. And Rosebud, the childhood toy that haunts Kane, is now Rosebud Dick, a friend of Mort's parents who commits suicide. Rose Budnick becomes a plot point later. Mort says he thinks about her, this woman who was a friend of his parents who committed suicide. She was an intellectual like Mort, and she just gave up. And that death has haunted Mort for the rest of his life. Who? Rose Budnick. She died. Oh my God, how? 
Well, she committed suicide. Oh, no. Oh, she was such a brilliant woman. She, an intellectual. She was a Holocaust survivor. She left a note. She decided life was meaningless. She found no point in going on. Oh, how crazy to, to judge life as meaningless. Well, if you think about it, Max, what does it mean? There's no surprise that Swedish director Igmar Bergman gets three films, and he's the only one to do so. In this film, we see Wild Strawberries and Seventh Seal, both originally released in 1957, just 10 months apart. We also see 1966's Persona. Alan has often called Bergman his favourite and has gone to him for inspiration many times. The main story of Rifkin is Bergman-esque already. Bergman is referenced in Alan films as diverse as his comedies like Love and Death to his intense dramas like Interiors. Alan has also worked with some of Bergman's collaborators over the years, like actor Max von Sydow and cinematographer Sven Nykvist. But in reality, Alan is such a devout follower of Bergman that his influence is felt in almost all of Alan's films. It also says a lot that a couple of the Bergman cover versions are the ones that are most important to the story and all appear towards the end of the film. The Wild Strawberry sequence is one of my favourites and the most important. Alan plays on two key scenes from Wild Strawberries, First, we see Mort in prime snobbishness in a very funny dinner scene. He's the film guy and the host asks him for a recommendation. He recommends Chishinagura by Hiroshi Inagaki. It sounds pretentious, but it's actually quite a breezy action film that was released in the US in 1962 called 47 Samurai. So Mort is deliberately being an insufferable prick. It's the film snob version of Lisping the Sea in Barcelona. <laughs> okay, Mr. Big Film Maven. Tell us what we should rent to watch up here. Chushigura by Inayaki. Mm. Oh, who's in it? Uh, Yuzo Kayama and Tatsuo Mihashi. Yasumi wrote the screenplay, Toshio Yasumi. There's also uh, Kagemusha with uh, Tatsuya Nakadai and music by Shunichiro Ikebe. It's with the second scene that we really dig into Mort's rivalry with his brother Jake, played by Steve Gutenberg. Mort overhears a conversation between Jake and his wife Doris, played by Tammy Blanchard, who once dated Mort. It's another little regret. I think your brother still has a little crush on me. It's understandable, but it's his hard luck. You know, he met you first. You guys had a few dates. And uh, he had a shot. He wasn't for me, all that highfalutin bullshit. The big questions. <laughs> Give me a break. Then there's the seventh seal. Is there any scene from European cinema that is referenced more? It's fittingly the climax of this film from a cinematic level. By the end of the film, when you understand what Alan is doing, how could Mort not meet Bergman's vision of death? Alan also stunt cast Christoph Waltz in the role, further laying out the importance of the scene. So funny then that on the whole, the scene undercuts the threat of death. Death is like a casual guy offering bits of health advice and shrugs off the big questions. Death becomes the person that Mort tells his revelations to, that maybe he should give up on the book and go back to teaching. Whatever journey Mort goes on, he's decided he's arrived there by the time he gets to his encounter with death. And of course, death is apathetic. He's a bit... Whatever. I have to go. I got a million house calls to make. No, wait, wait! Well, don't worry. I'll be back one day and then you'll think it's too soon. You'll be back? When? Depends. You smoke? No. The trick is to eat lots of fruits and vegetables and lay off the saturated fats. Oh, I do. I'm very careful. 
Good, good. Uh, uh, make sure to exercise. It doesn't have to be intense as long as it's every day. You're fading out. The third Bergman film is Persona. That film is a complicated story about two women, and Alan barely scratches the surface. But he does use Persona to look at the two female leads in Rifkin's festival and confess past sins. We get more of Sue, and we learn she once had a chance of a great passionate love affair and chose not to. We also get the biggest defence of Mort, that really, his only sin was that he prefers films with subtitles. I never cheated on Mort, but I came very close. Once, with a prominent architect who fell in love with me, and he wanted to take me away to Africa on safari. And I really wanted to go. But at the last minute, I just wasn't ready to have an affair. We know Alan loves Federico Fellini and his film Eight and a Half. Alan had pretty much covered Eight and a Half with his film Stardust Memories. You can see Fellini's influence on Alan films like Radio Days, Alice and many more. The scene that Alan chose from Eight and a Half was a large garden party. It was actually quite different from the original film. Alan employs a point-of-view camera with people talking to the audience. The scene for Mort is busy and lively, and Mort talks to person after person from his past, his English teacher who saw promise in him, an old neighbourhood crush, his parents, his rabbi, and more. They ask Mort about the book that he just can't manage to finish, and it's clear these ghosts still haunt Mort. Tell me, Mort, are you still asking those big questions? God, death, the meaning of life? Rabbi Mintz, yes. They're the only questions worth asking. The rest is all trivia. You know, I sometimes wonder if you're a true Jew. You don't observe the Sabbath. You ridicule your religion. You've never been to Israel. What would God say if you met face to face? After what God's done, I have nothing to say to him. Let him talk to my lawyer. Who but a Jew would think of suing God? Who but a Jew would have a slam dunk case? The biggest cover version is Louis Bunuel's 1962 film, The Exterminating Angel. Bunuel was Spanish and made films all over the world. The Exterminating Angel came late in his career and was made in Mexico. The film is a mysterious black comedy about an upper-class dinner party who are trapped for unknown reasons and soon descend into comic horror. We get none of that in Alan's cover version but we do get most of the cast together in one big room for the first time. Things go a little crazy and once again everyone makes fun of Mort. But it's about Joe here. In Mort's mind, he makes her an offer to run away but she can't go, trapped by unknown forces. This is what happens to the real Joe in this story. What's wrong? I can't. You can't what? I can't leave. I want to go with you, but I can't. I just can't. I'm not sure what you mean. See? It's funny, I I don't feel that I can leave. The rest of the cover versions, three in total, are French and all released in the 60s. I might have missed it, but I've never read or heard Alan really talk about Un Homme et Une Femme, the 1966 romantic film by Claude Lelouch. He's connected to the French New Wave that Alan adores, although Lelouch would reject that description. I wonder if Alan used this film just because of the wonderful, intimate driving scene that is in the original film. It's a great template for the intimate conversation that Mort has with Joe in his mind. Only another hour and we'll be in Paris. Do you believe in love at first sight? 
I do. I knew I wanted you when you told me there was nothing wrong with my heart and it was just reflux. Reflux is such a pretty word, don't you think? When you say it. The other two are not just connected to the French New Wave, they are pretty much the high-watermark, genre-defining tenets of the scene. Alan was in his 20s when these films came out, and they very much shaped him. Jean-Luc Godard's Breathless, his groundbreaking debut, was released in 1960. Alan has always mentioned this film as amongst his favourites. Alan's worked for Godard, appearing in his 1987 film King Lear, and there was a documentary about Godard meeting Alan called Meeting W.A. in 1986. Alan chooses a very intimate scene from Breathless of a couple in bed to show very intimate scenes between Sue and Mort. It's one of the more fun scenes. Did your brother know you lust after his wife? I don't lust after her. You asked about a threesome and I gave it some thought. And why are we under these sheets? I'm suffocating. Breathless was written by Francois Truffaut, who was a groundbreaking director in his own right. You can see his influence on Alan's career, most notably on Annie Hall. Alan uses Truffaut's Jewels at Gym, which is about a love triangle. Alan picks a couple of impossibly beautiful summary scenes of bike riding and beach frolicking to show the film's own love triangle between Mort, Joe and Philippe. We used to have the most amazing discussions. Books, the theatre, serious music, that summer in Newport... And now, you and I are both in love with her. These cover versions are a big part of the film, but sometimes I feel like they obscure the point rather than make one. I'm looking at the trick and it distracts from the film's story. And that story is, of course, about Mort. He's the 11th character to get his name in the title of a Woody Allen film. That doesn't always mean it's all about one character, see Hannah and her sisters, but this film is mostly about Mort. I like Mort. He's not always pleasant, but Alan portrays him as funny. His film opinions and snarky one-liners about Philippe are funny. Seeing Mort sneak around, pretending to be sick so he can see more of Dr. Rojas, is great. He's a bit useless, but we enjoy watching him muddle through. So much of this film is Mort's voiceover. Mort's thoughts dominate the film, and I guess the conceit is that it's all a story he's telling to a shrink. Voiceover covers many filmmaking crimes. It tells the audience instead of showing. There is a bit of that here, more explaining what's going on, but there are a couple of scenes where it's all about the voiceover. Take the short scene where Mort visits a couple of churches. His voiceover is like a chapter of a book written in first person. The visuals come second. I'd like to say whenever I'm in a church, it's only the aesthetics I respond to. But I love visiting any house of worship. I have great respect for religious faith. I read the entire Bible cover to cover and fell in love with Eve, Job's wife, and Delilah. My shrink says I'm attracted to women who will hurt me. Mort is at his best when he meets Joe, and the most pleasant parts of the film are the two of them together, going to a flea market and having a picnic. But both are escaping their real lives, and beneath some of the postcard tourist fun is a sadder story. One scene really breaks my heart. It's one of the early dinners. Mort is with Sue and Philippe. He's talking about the films he loves, but no one is paying attention to him. He's talking to himself. It's almost like Boonwell has become real before we ever see that cover version. No one is listening to him. He's in a crowded room, full of noise, all alone. You know, from the very beginning, I was such a fan of uh, Godard and Truffaut and Claude Lelouch, a man and a woman. <laughs> 
And, and, and the stuff you were saying to her about the montage? Oh, uh, yes. I mean, she was yes. eating that yes, up. The montage, yeah. I mean, I just thought she was a star. But you know what? You know, I missed something because my, so my, my, my influence is, you know, my influence is one more John Ford, you know, Howard Hawks. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. I miss I, that, you know? I just always loved Breathless and Jules and Jim. Jules and Jim was such a masterpiece. And, and, There's and, a lot of talk throughout the film about cinema itself. We learn Mort's taste and we also learn Philippe's. It's more interesting what Philippe likes for me. He mentions American directors like John Ford and Frank Capra, two directors that Alan has never raved about. Films like Bringing Up Baby get slated. But Mort makes an even bigger point about the immaturity of Hollywood films that peddled happy endings to a generation. You know what I like about the American masters is their sense of optimism. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know? If you'll notice, I always, you know, I always try to leave the audience with a sense of hope. There's no doubt the American masters were wonderful, but... Um... Generations of Americans were misled into thinking that Hollywood endings were real and not make-believe. And then the Europeans came along and movies grew up. A lot of the jokes are film jokes. If you don't know at least half of these classic films, or never attended a film festival, I wonder what you would get out of this. Early on, we get a scene where people give snippets of conversations about films, referencing the Marx Brothers and silly producers. These aren't jokes for everyone. The characters that populate the film are people who work on film. Mort's friend Tomas works for a film company and has a film at the festival. Sue is a publicist. There's references to real film companies like Paramount, MGM and Universal. Alan has done this before, notably in Hollywood Ending. I like some of the jokes, but I don't love all of them. This is a film that works best if you've seen a lot of films. In my new movie on the Eichmann trial, you would be perfect to play Hannah Arendt. You know, tonight at 8 o'clock, there's a special screening of an old Three Stooges movie, the director's cut. In the movie, were all your orgasm special effects? So is Mort Rifkin a stand-in for Woody Allen? Maybe. There's certainly parallels. Rifkin's favourite films are Allen's favourite films. Allen is a writer, a famous hypochondriac, and the world's poster child for psychoanalysis. But Rifkin is a teacher who is a frustrated artist struggling to finish a novel. Alan has been producing films, books, plays and other writings non-stop for 50 odd years. Rifkin is also unbearably snobby. Sure, Alan talks about intellectual stuff, but he would proclaim that he's a fan and not an expert. He'd rather talk about the Knicks. The frustrated artist trope is something Alan has played with many times. Renata from Interiors, Christina in Vicky Christina Barcelona, Holly in Hannah and Her Sisters, and more recently, Sydney in Crisis in Six Scenes. Alan equates existential angst with writer's block, and it's interesting because Alan claims to have never gotten writer's block. I think Mort Rifkin is like Woody Allen the way that Harry Block from Deconstructing Harry is like Woody Allen. There's lots of superficial similarities, but there are fundamental differences. Not least of all, that Alan has been happily married for about 25 years now. Which brings us to Mort's love life. I like that we do get a couple of scenes with Sue, who has her own regrets. She's had the chance at great love and wants to have it again as she's getting older. And it's not going to come from Mort. Sue is fun. She doesn't want to hurt Mort, but their marriage is very much over. When she goes off to find something better, we don't hate her for it. We understand. She isn't fully fleshed out, and we aren't invested in her journey. But she's more than just a plot point. And with Sue is Philippe. I wonder if Alan based him on anyone in particular. I imagine Alan has quietly mocked many young directors who have come through with big ideas over the years, but he's undeniably more attractive and kind to Sue than Mort, even if he's a bit of a cartoon. Oh, I don't put his stuff down as lowbrow. It's middlebrow. Oh, 
Also a bit of a cartoon, unfortunately, is Jo. She seems lovely and we don't learn that much about her. She's unhappy, but she's not a character with wants. She's just been created to meet Mort. And let's talk about Joe's husband, Paco, played by Sergei Lopez. He's a firebrand of a painter, a man of great passions but no control. We hear he's brilliant, but comes with all the negatives of being brilliant. He's almost a Joe character. When we meet him, he's cartoonishly villainous, and we adore Joe, so we hate him. It's interesting that Paco is a bit of a mirror for Javier Bardem's character in Vicky Cristina Barcelona. Alan sometimes likes to take the same idea and explore it from different angles. Where Vicky Cristina Barcelona looked at the romance and passions of a bohemian life, this is the opposite. Joe becomes in some way the dark version of Rebecca Hall's character in Vicky Cristina Barcelona. She moved to Spain to be with her artistic husband, but it wasn't the dream she imagined. Also, for Mort, striving to be an artist, he is put off by this artistic lifestyle. Hurry about this. Sorry. Is it safe to leave you with him? Of course it's safe! Who are you? Tranquilo. Just a friend. What do you mean, is it safe? What kind of stupid question is that? But in the end, Mort's journey ends on a bittersweet note. Mort and Sue decide to end their relationship in a surprisingly mature breakup. A breakup between two older people who aren't pretending there's a Hollywood romantic ending for them. It comes as the climax of the film, near the end, and is just about the final step in Mort's journey. Mort, I think we should break up. What do you mean? <sighs> Come on. It's like we've been hanging on the side of a sinking ship. Our marriage is doomed. We both know it. It's just is going to take one of us to make the first move. Mort, by the end of the film, has realised he has been too snobby and alienated people, and he's arrogant about his novel, wanting to make a masterpiece that's beyond his ability. He's also living the shadow of past ghosts, and he can now at least admit to it, if not get past it. The final step for Mort through this is to say goodbye to Joe. Mort calls her a dream that never quite came true, but she will be a nice memory for him. It got his heart going, and it's a suggestion that he's not just the morose, cantankerous grump that some see of him. I like the cover versions, but they are also distracting. I get bits of Mort's life, and I don't really get what drives him. Mort is fun in places, but I don't fall for him the way that I do for Harry Block or for Boris from Whatever Works or other difficult, grumpy Woody Allen leading man roles. At times the film is light and romantic, at others it's sad and regretful. I like seeing Mort, the know-it-all Scrooge, just bitterly insulting his way through a film festival, and I also like the idea of the man alone in a foreign city confronting the ghost of his past that won't let go. But it's a bit funny, a bit sad, and not much of either. The flavours are subtle. Nothing big happens to Mort other than the end of his marriage. The relationship with Joe is lovely, but doesn't lead anywhere. No bad guys get their comeuppance. It's all about what happens in Mort's head. It just happens that head is in gorgeous San Sebastian. You know, since coming to the film festival, I have had the strangest thoughts and dreams. Well, you know what they say, films are like celluloid dreams. Rifkin's festival was shot in 2019, just before the 2019 San Sebastian Film Festival that ran in September. Throughout the film, we see people in the background with San Sebastian Film Festival tote bags, and we visit some of the key sites from the film festival, such as Kersal Palace and the Hotel Maria Cristina, where the stars stay. The production couldn't shoot during the actual film festival, but they made use of some of the infrastructure that was set up early. I can't imagine the logistics of making that happen. It's a great job by the production team. Outside of the festival, San Sebastian looks wonderful. I can absolutely understand why Alan chose it as a city to spend a few weeks in and make a film. There's the beautiful bay, 
and there seems to be an abundance of parks and paths. The primary occupation of people in San Sebastian seems to be sitting at an outdoor restaurant, eating and drinking. There are some amazing restaurants that I'm sure I can't afford to eat at. But I like the more rustic stuff. I like the flea market and the boat ride and the picnics in the park. Not everything has to be so touristy. The film is shot beautifully by Vittorio Storaro. It's his fourth film in a row with Alan and his work has revitalised Alan's visuals. Storaro is highly intellectual and as usual looks at paintings and photography for inspiration. There's an unusual amount of blue in this film, not a colour that Alan usually likes. It reflects the blue of the waters and a lot of the time the blue is in the windows. There's of course plenty of vistas and plenty of breathtaking shots worthy of postcards. There aren't as many intricately staged long shots as Alan's last couple of films. In fact, there's quite a lot of cutting. There's even a couple of simple scenes where Alan would usually shoot in one take, but here he cuts. Maybe Alan and editor Lisa Lepselta are trying to make things fit with the cover versions, or maybe the pair are just mixing it up. I imagine everyone had fun with the cover versions. Storaro and Alan replicate many specific shots, from the lighting to the sets to the staging. The Citizen Kane section has the famous, often studied shot with the extreme depth of field, with Mort in the window outside and his family in the foreground. The Seventh Seal has the sudden close-up on Death's face. There's a bit of fun just matching some of these specific shots. Of course, they are in black and white. It makes sense visually as they give the dream sequences a different character. They also make sense in that all the originals are also in black and white, but it does give Alan the excuse to go back to that palette. Alan had considered a younger person in the role of Rifkin, but only comparatively younger. Remember, George Clooney is the same age as Gina Gershon, but it was Juliet Taylor, Alan's recently retired casting director, who suggested Wallace Shawn. Alan agreed and said the reason he's so great is because Shawn is a true intellectual. Wallace Shawn has had so many great roles, in popular culture, he will always be his character from The Princess Bride, or the voice of a toy in Toy Story, or a wonderful role in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. But Sean was a playwright before he ever met Alan. He wrote these controversial art plays, and outside of his pop culture roles, he's notable for his love of high art and high ideas. Just look at his celebrated work in 1981's My Dinner with Andre, where it's basically an intellectual argument between two friends that Sean co-wrote. Sean does a great job in places that I don't think Alan would be able to pull off. If it was Alan in the dinner flashback scene, where he was recommending an old Japanese film, it would have been a joke from the start. Here, Sean plays it straight, and he pretentiously tells the dinner guests about the film, which gives it a different kind of dark humour. We don't laugh, we squirm. Sean is just better at playing a stuck-up, stuffy snob. Wallace Sean is just a better actor than Woody Allen. I love Sean's acting choices here. Some people see it as an Alan film and they look straight at how Alan-y the lead character is. And yes, it's a lot, but it sells short what Sean does here. Sean is by nature a more emotionally eruptive actor. Every line is delivered in his particular way, but he's faster to anger and more casually passionate. Where? Oh my God, Mort, I can barely see that. It's a, it's a bug bite. Well, I'd prefer to hear that from a qualified physician. I'm a qualified physician. You are? Dermatologist. This is Dr. Klein. He's only the biggest dermatologist in all of Europe. Yeah, mind if I take a look? Mm, thanks. All right. Yeah, she's right. It's just a bug bite. It is. No, it's nothing. Gina Gershon is great. She gives Sue more character than she has on the page. She's confident and smart and kind of cool. 
I don't think Alan is setting us up to dislike her. She has a sense of fun about her that her marriage is choking. It's good casting too because Gina Gershon seems like a lot of fun as a person, a true free spirit. My first husband was so possessive, smothering, always accusing me of things he was doing himself. And then I met Mort, was sweet and brilliant. I still feel like I've never really lived. Love passionately, full of wild abandon, and soon it's going to be too late. Alana Anaya is lovely, although I feel like her character is a bit of an archetype more than a person. She comes across lovely and deeper than she lets on. We see glimpses of emotion below the surface. Alan gives her several close-ups, which she nails. He has affairs, and I accept that. After all, he's an artist. And you can't judge an artist by bourgeois standards. He's, he's creative and tempestuous. Well, if you would agree... Louise Gorel gives an interesting performance as Philippe. He's so charming, confident and handsome. He's supposed to be annoying, but it's weird. He's not. He's a bit silly at times, but Gorel doesn't make him a straw man. He delivers the humour in an incredibly droll way, and it works. He's impervious to anything Mort does. He just sort of floats through the film, the most charming and handsome out of everyone. If you is less, <laughs> less pessimistic, you know, in the end, I believe art makes it all worthwhile. Mm. Art and love with the right person, you know, romance, you know, adventure, passion, all these things make life a, a positive experience. But we had this conversation earlier. And then there's a lot of smaller roles. Richard Kind, who plays Mort's father, is fantastic. It's amazing it took him this long to get a Woody Allen gig as they have so many friends in common. And he just brings that Richard Kind delivery to every character. He's up there with Wallace Shawn as a character actor and he just brings that Richard Kind delivery to everything he does. He's relaxed and charming and a great screen presence. We just came to give you a piece of advice, son. I was going to have it put on my tombstone when I died but your mother thought it was too vulgar. And that advice is... Money talks, shit walks. Steve Gutenberg plays Mort's brother, Jake. He had worked with Alan before when he started Alan's play, Honeymoon Hotel, in 2011. He made so much money in the 80s as the star of Police Academy and the Three Men and a Baby films that he basically does what he wants. He's a big fan of Alan and was probably happy just to hang out in Spain and work with Alan again. In a small role is Sergei Lopez as Joe's husband, Peco, but he gets billing. He's Spanish and he's appeared in popular English language films like Dirty Pretty Things and The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. He thunders in as Paco in just two scenes and isn't given much to do. But there was at least one photo of Joe in his art studio that was released that isn't in the finished film, so we know at least some of his storyline got cut. It's odd considering that Richard Kind and Steve Gutenberg get more scenes and are more known but don't get billing. Overall, the billing makes no sense to me. Enrique Aker, who plays Tomas, and Douglas McGrath, who plays Gil, all of whom have prominent roles, are also not billed. Who is billed is Christoph Waltz, who is wonderful in his small role as Death. It's crazy to get an actor of such talent and give him so little to do, but you can see he's having fun, despite being dressed probably quite uncomfortably. Waltz, for his part, said he was honoured to do anything for Alan, and hopefully his performance might earn him a chance to do two scenes next time. Why are you here? To have our final chess game. I don't have a chess set. I never leave home without mine. As usual for Alan, when he shoots in Europe, 
he uses a different crew. Sonia Grande returns for her fifth film as costume designer, although this time she works in contemporary dress. Elaine Benet returns as production designer, last working with Alan on Vicky Cristina Barcelona. And a lot of media pro people are listed as producers. Also returning from other European films is Stéphane Remble. This is the third time that the US-based guitarist has worked with Alan, with some of his work appearing in the soundtracks of Vicky Cristina Barcelona and Midnight in Paris. He is obviously Alan's go-to for some continental European flavour. This time Remble composed original pieces. You can't get them, there's no soundtrack released, but his tasteful exotic guitar can be heard throughout the film. The opening credits track is Remble's arrangement of Wrap Your Troubles in Dreams, a song made famous by Bing Crosby in 1931 and covered by countless artists since. On vocals is a frequent collaborator of Remble's, musician Aurora Neeland. On paper, it looks like another time when Alan has just plucked a song out because of its title. I guess that's at least partly true, but it really emphasises that those dream sequences are the heart of the film. The song is also used in the film's finale, and Alan cuts together a little montage of scenes we've seen from the film. I think this is Alan's way of leaving audiences with a bit of a happier note. The music works even if the montage is a little lazy. Using the song again emphasises that we can wrap our troubles in dreams, and like Rifkin, use cinema as an escape. Rifkin's Festival was released on the 18th of September 2020, opening the 68th San Sebastian Film Festival. It was premiered in the heart of the COVID pandemic, and there was a lot of uncertainty about the festival going ahead at all, or if the film would even play there. On the day of the premiere, Alan and Sean was beamed in remotely for a press conference. Attending in person was Elena Anaya and Gina Gershon. It opened in Spain, but then cinemas remained closed as COVID spread around the world. It was well over another year before some countries started releasing the film at the end of 2021, before opening wider in North America, South America, and more of Europe in early 2022. By that time, the release was so delayed and cinema in such a weird state that it was available on iTunes to buy as soon as it came out. Either way, it didn't do very well at the box office, and the box office wasn't doing very well anyway. As of right now, it still hasn't come out in several big countries for Alan, like France. You can tell that a Woody Allen film isn't doing well if different countries start making changes. If it's a hit, there's no need to make a new poster to highlight other cast members, for example. The change for this film was the name. Allen gets complete creative control, but he also wants his films to do well, and he understands that sometimes his titles don't translate. See the weird journey of To Rome With Love. So in Brazil, Rifkin's festival was released under the name The Festival of Love. In other countries, like Mexico, it was given a long subtitle, translated as Rifkin's Festival, A Wrong Romance in the Right Place. At least they didn't change the poster, possibly because the poster is so good. It was designed by Jordi Lambanda. He's a graphic artist who created the wonderful cartoon that graces the poster. It feels like a getaway brochure. It won the Ferroz Award, Spain's top film prize for best poster. This isn't one of Alan's strongest films. In fact, for me, it's probably one of my least favourites in this last decade. But it's also the most recent, and I've changed my mind completely about films I used to think were weak, like Another Woman and anything else. So maybe time will tell. I found the film to be much more affecting the second time around. I got over the trickery of the cover versions, which actually don't take up that much of the runtime, and got to feel more for Mort. This feels like a film made by an old man. Alan's last film, A Rainy Day in New York, 
felt energetic and had his youngest ever leading cast. This film feels so slow in parts, with lots of people talking and doesn't zip around. But Alan is an old man, and in a turnaround from a rainy day in New York, Sean is in his mid-70s, and it's the oldest leading role Alan has ever written. I hope Alan doesn't stay in this world, and history shows us he's unlikely to make two similar films in a row. But Alan is known for his overflow of ideas and energy, and I feel it's missing here. To Mort's novel, a work of neither art nor commerce as it remains thus far unfinished, a work in no progress. I predict if he does finish this novel, it would be mired with thoughts, all foreplay and no orgasm. There's also a lack of surprises for me. If this was made by a hot young director referencing the history of cinema greats, that would be amazing. But instead, I think people know Alan loves Igmar Bergman. And then there's the esoteric film jokes. It's a very insular film. It's definitely not for everyone. I think what Alan is trying to say is how sad it is that the golden era of European cinema is over and how its influence and relevance is waning. I don't know if Alan is saying it should come back or anything. It's actually an old Alan theme, Ozymandias Melancholia, which he talked about in Stardust Memories and To Rome With Love. Alan is sad about the passing of time and how no works we create will ever last. I don't mean this to be an insult, but this film makes me want to watch other films. Not just the films that Alan has covered, but Mort goes on about cinema classics so much, it makes me feel like I should revisit the classics. I get the same sense from an actual covers album in music. It's nice to see what someone has done and how they did it, but we all know that a cover that surpasses or adds to the original is rare and difficult. Most cover albums, for me, send me back to the original. So when this film is over, the thing I feel is I need to go rewatch Breathless. It's not any feelings for Mort or his journey, but maybe that's the point for both Mort and Alan. These cover versions aren't asides. Those films and their place in history and culture is what is at stake here. And maybe the point of this film is for people to watch more of the European greats straight after. It's what Mort would want you to do. There is a great period of uh, cinema classics, and that was my specialty, great classic movies. I mean, naturally, I gravitated toward the great European directors, you know, Fellini and Bergman. I remember all those wonderful Truffaut movies and Godard. Here's some fun facts about Rifkin's festival. The first time an Allen film played at the San Sebastian Film Festival was in 2004, when they ran a special retrospective of his works. Lots of films, from Everything You Always Wanted to Know About Sex to The Curse of the Jade Scorpion, was played. They also included documentaries like Wild Man Blues and Meeting WA, and some TV that I assumed never aired before in Spain, like The Sunshine Boys and Don't Drink the Water. Melinda and Melinda, Alan's latest film at the time, also played, and Alan attended the festival in person. Over the years, several more Alan films have played there, including Matchpoint, Vicky Cristina Barcelona, of course, and Irrational Man. Rifkin's Festival was Alan's sixth film at the festival. Alan has been consistent with his favourite films, but he loves more than nine films. There are plenty of films that Alan has said he loves that aren't in this film. There's no grand illusion. There's nothing Japanese like Rashomon. No comedy heroes like the Marx Brothers, Ernst Lubitsch or Billy Wilder. And no American classics like Stanley Kubrick's 2001. I wonder if having more of these cover versions would have made for a more interesting film. What would Alan have done with 2001? It's fun to think about. And finally, 
we don't really see them up close, but the festival is surrounded by posters promoting films that don't exist. I'm sure the production team had some fun making them up. They look like real posters and have real plausible titles like Philippe's film Apocalyptic Dreams. There's also other films called The Perfect Mind, The Woman Dress and The Runaway. I mean, you heard him talk about his next movie. He's going to try to reconcile the Arabs in Israel. Yes, I'm glad he's turning to science fiction. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode. What do you think of Rifkin's festival? Did you like it? Does it work better on repeat? Let me know, as always, at woodyallenpages at gmail.com. And last call for those questions about this episode or any of the episodes or even just your comments. I'll be recording the Q&A episode really soon. If you like the podcast, then you'll like my books. They're called The Woody Allen Film Guides, and they break down everything about every Woody Allen film. One of the reasons this podcast can even exist is because I spent years on those books. If you want to know the trivia, the locations, the music cues, and much more, they are in the books. The cars used, the paintings, the books in the background, people who went for auditions, deleted scenes, everything. You can buy them as paperbacks or ebooks from Amazon. Links in the description. Or if you're a Patreon supporter, you get the ebooks as part of your support package. There's also other ways to support me, and all the links are in the description. Patreon, as I mentioned, or you can buy me a coffee, or you can buy some podcast artwork on Redbubble. And of course, don't forget to tell a friend or to leave a five-star review on iTunes. Help to spread the word. Speaking of which, there is a bit of news on the site. A tour date in Spain has been announced for Woody Allen and his jazz band, and it coincides with a report that production might start on a new film later this year. We'll be following that, and there's going to be much more on the website, woodyallenpages.com. Don't forget to follow me on social media everywhere, at Woody Allen Pages. That's it in terms of films for this season. Next week, we have a second special episode. Following on from the one that we did last season about Woody Allen and music, the next episode looks at Woody Allen's relationship with the camera. Thanks for listening. You wouldn't die for love. I'd frankly prefer not to die for anything, and that includes sickness, old age, or choking on a bagel.